0: That's an awkward response to the video. That wasn't how delighted you were to see me step on stage. I'm going I'm to take it that way. Um, welcome. You guys glad to be here? You guys ready for fall? Yeah. Ah, kind of, kind of in that like halfway. Um, I love summer. Um, I love the warm weather. Not a big fan of snow and the other uh, season that we have here in Michigan. And um, but here's one thing nice about fall. You kind of get back into the routine. And all of our programs kick back up. Small groups kick back up. Kids go back to school. That's the second joy, right, parents? First joy is when they come home at the beginning of summer. Second joy is when you get to send them back. And uh, we are falling back into the fall at church. But i got to tell you, as pastors, we've been praying that this fall would be anything but routine. We are kicking off a series this morning called Honest to God, um, 10 Prayers That Changed Everything. If you have your Bible, I'm going to have you start to look for Ephesians 1, Find yourself in Ephesians 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's ushers coming down the aisle. Just raise your hand. They'll get a Bible into your hand. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please keep this as a gift from us. But we are going to spend all fall 10 weeks studying prayer. And some of you are like, yeah, I'm fired up about that. But a lot of you aren't. And it's interesting, um, in the life of our church, we're going into our ninth ministry year. We've never preached a series on prayer to our shame. And uh, prayer is such a vital part of our Christian lives, as I thought over the past um, few years in our church, it's like, why haven't we ever focused on prayer in any extended way? And, and here's the truth, um, a lot of us aren't fired up to talk about prayer because if we were honest with ourselves, that's an area in our lives that uh, we struggle with. To, to prove the point, I've asked this in the other services, but I would just Ask the question, honesty in church, how many of you, though you know where to be men and women of prayer, would acknowledge, would admit that in seasons you struggle to have a consistent, deep, powerful relationship with the creator of the universe in prayer? How many of you struggle with that? Just keep your hands up, don't be shy. Okay, so this is a common problem. And we know that we're to be men and women of prayer, but we struggle with prayer. And if you ask people, well, why do you struggle with prayer? Why don't you pray? They'll give you a lot of different reasons. Here's some of the reasons that I see. I think a lot of times we're just, honestly, we're just prideful. We're self-sufficient. Like, prayer is the Hail Mary. You try to figure things out on your own, and then you get to the end, and you're in a conundrum, and you can't figure it out, and then somebody comes along and says, well, I guess the only thing we can do is pray. Like, it's a last resort because we try to be self-sufficient. I think that's part of the problem. I think sometimes we say we're too busy to pray. Okay, question. How many of you had your coffee this morning? How many of you had breakfast this morning? Okay, so you you had time to do that, right? That was important, so you did that. I look around the room and it appears the vast majority got dressed this morning. You had time to get dressed before you came to church and it seems like we have time to accomplish the things that we purpose are important, but somehow we never have time for prayer. That says something. I don't think it's that we don't know how to pray. I don't think it's that we shouldn't pray. I think sometimes one of the reasons that we don't pray, if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, I've tried praying, I don't understand how it works and it doesn't seem to change anything. I've prayed. Nothing's changing. And quite honestly, sometimes we can or struggle to understand how prayer works. So if we're going to spend all fall in a series on prayer, what I'm trying to tackle this morning, what I'm going to try to explain is why prayer matters. What does prayer really accomplish? And let me do it by way of illustration if I could. So two weeks ago, um, That was two weeks ago, the the Thursday before. Um, I got in a car. It was late Thursday afternoon. I drove down to um, Chicago. I drove to O'Hare Airport. It's about a a three-and-a-half-hour drive to the airport. And then I waited at the airport for two-and-a-half hours for my flight. And my flight took off at 12.30 uh, a.m. And I landed in um, Anchorage, Alaska at 4.10 in the morning Alaska time. What do you do in Alaska at 4.30 a.m.? The same thing you do here. You go to Denny's, right? And uh, so we went to Denny's. We got breakfast. Denny's is never one of those places that you're like, I'm going to go to Denny's. You end up there. Well, we ended up at Denny's, okay? So we had, we had breakfast, and we had a day to kill in Anchorage. And then Saturday morning, I got up, and I got on a little uh, jumper flight. It's about an hour and a half long, just a 12-seater plane. There were nine passengers on the plane. Uh, to a town called Dillingham, Alaska. Town is being generous. I'm starting to move into uh, more and more remote Alaska to give you an idea of this plane. They give you the same security talk that you get or safety talk that you get on any plane that you get on. They teach you how to do a seatbelt. That's important, you know, for us to be reminded of. But in this uh, safety instruction, what's not normally included on planes that I've flown on is they explain that this is going to be an hour and a half flight and there's no restroom facilities on the plane, so in case of an emergency, there's a bucket between the passenger area and the cockpit. That wouldn't be an emergency. That would be a catastrophe <laughs> that, would, that would make you access the bucket thing. So, so we fly into Dillingham, and from Dillingham, we pile into vans, the nine of us, and we take um, about a 40-minute ride down to the shore of Lake... A I think I said that correctly. And from there we go into boats and we take another 40-minute ride to Bristol Bay Lodge, which is only accessible by boat and plane. There are no roads. And uh, we arrive at the lodge just before lunch and they serve us lunch and they kind of give us the plan for the week and the owner of the lodge comes up to me and goes, hey, David, have your guys ready. There were four of us there have your guys ready, we're gonna have you put you guys on a float plane in an hour, and we're gonna fly you out to Rainbow Camp. So we get on a plane, we fly to Rainbow Camp. Rainbow Camp is um, 42 miles away from a little Indian village called Togiak. There isn't a human within 40 miles when you're there, and your plane lands in the river, kind of in the background here, and you trudge your stuff across the Alaskan tundra to the camp, and we're gonna spend two days there fishing. We fish for salmon there. Some of you are like, man, you must really like fishing. Some other people pointed out to me, they, you can catch salmon right off the pier. It's just, o- it's just <laughs> over there. Um, well, it's not so much about fishing. I, I enjoy fishing. It, it, it's about being remote. And my phone says no service when I'm at Rainbow Camp, and I love that. Like, listen, I love you all, but I love that too. And uh, I'm away and I'm enjoying the beauty of Alaska and if I have my choice, I'd rather enjoy it standing in a river with a fly rod than I would on a cruise or something like that. I think it's one of the most pretty places in the world. And once you arrive at Rainbow Camp, you jump into two fishing boats and you go upstream maybe just a quarter mile, maybe five minutes, and you fish at a place that is called the confluence. It is where two rivers come together. And as those two rivers flow down to the Bering Sea, Rainbow Camp is only a mile from the Bering Sea. Its tidal water's there. But you fish at the confluence because the fish tend to gather at the center of the confluence. You can see where the boats are fishing there because the fish want to get out of the current of the two rivers. And often at the confluence, there is deep holes or there is a place that they can rest in between the two rivers and get out of the current and rest for the rest of their journey upriver till they spawn or die. So at that confluence between these two rivers is where you like to fish. Now all of you know way more about fishing than you ever cared to. Trust me, that's not my intent but I do believe that when it comes to prayer, sometimes we struggle to pray because we're not motivated, because we don't understand how it works, because we are either in one river or two rivers of biblical theological truth, and they affect our viewpoint on prayer. Can I describe river one for you for a minute? And this is the whole concept and the idea that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In your notes, it's the idea that God is sovereign, and then there's a hash on the other side of that. I would say that he is unchanging If you found your way to Ephesians 1, let me pick it up in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So if we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, what did we have to do with that choice? The answer is nothing. That choice was made before you were. We just watched a God at at work video with Jared and Nicole. And should we get counseling? Should we not get counseling? What should we do? Should we make a decision? And at the end of it, Jared said the exact right thing. That's when God saved me. See, our salvation is a gift of God. It's not a decision that we made, and if you've made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, trust me, biblically theological truth would tell you that if you came to a moment of decision, it's because God is working in the background to draw you to himself. Verse 4, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Did we figure it out, or did he make himself known? God is the active agent throughout this entire process. He is the one that is creating the activity. We are the passive element. And Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God does as He pleases. Your salvation is a gift this river that I'm describing of God's sovereignty. Many of you are very comfortable in this because you grew up in a West Michigan Reformed community. Here's some really good news. It's solid biblical truth. Others of you aren't real comfortable with what I'm talking about right now. Like you want to be in control of that decision and you're struggling with it and I'm kind of pressing on a raw nerve. Well, because I love you, please let me press on that nerve a little bit harder, okay? And I want to give you some other verses from Scripture to validate... This concept that God is in control. Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. God does what he wants on the land and in the sea. It's interesting. You spend time with the guides in Alaska. It might surprise you. This isn't a really religious bunch of dudes, okay? But it's interesting. If you start to talk to them about the things of God, almost all of them believe in God because they're watching an eco cycle take place in Alaska where fish that are out in the oceans Return after two or three years to the very place that they were spawned. They run up the rivers. Who in the world put that navigation system into them? And as they come up the river, they spawn, they die, the bears eat them, the bears go to the bathroom, the bugs eat. They watch this whole cycle go round and round. They say something had to design this. God is in control. Proverbs 1633 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Life is way less random than we would care to admit. My wife and I, when we're killing time, we've got this game we call it marbles. It's kind of like sorry, but you move your marbles around, you try to get them home, you roll dice. God's in control of those dice. I've come to acknowledge and accept that because there's no way in the world my wife could win as often as she does. She's not smarter than me. <laughs> like, like, there's just no way. So, so God sovereignly has ordained that she's going to win more. Why I don't know. God is sovereign. Not only does God accomplish what He sets His mind to, God is what theologians term immutable. It's the idea that He never changes. Who he is, his attributes never change. His plans never change. His promises are reliable. They are unchanging. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it? Or he has spoken and will he not fulfill it? Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this doctrine of sovereignty and the idea that God is unchanging is incredibly important to our our faith. It is foundational. It is critical because the fact that God is in control of all things and the fact that he is unchanging gives us the confidence that you're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and have God say to you, I don't love you anymore. God never withdraws His grace or His unconditional love from you. He is unchanging, and when He promises something, it is true. This is a river of biblical truth over and over throughout Scripture. God is in control. He does as He pleases, and He is unchanging. Okay. As it relates to prayer, doesn't that re... Doesn't that create... A little bit of a crisis? If God never changes, if God is sovereign, why pray? If He never changes His mind, if His will never moves, why would we take the time to pray? Now, if you've lived in this river, if this is the river that you've grown up in, one of the dangers of being in this river is all of a sudden prayer does not become critical because you don't understand how it works. You will struggle to be motivated to pray because you don't understand how it works. And the way men who have lived in this river, as I have lived in this river, typically explain it to you is well, nothing changes with God. All prayer does is conform your will to the Father's will. That's one river. Can I talk to you about another river that is just as biblical as the river that just explained that God is sovereign and unchanging? Here's river two. River two is the idea that God responds. Throughout scripture, there is account after account of God responding to the prayers of his people. I'll go back to the book of Genesis. I'll pick it up in Genesis 18. You don't have to turn there. The verses are going to be on the screen. But in Genesis 18, let me pick it up in verse 20. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether, uh, to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Okay, i you just a question. If God's sovereign, if he's all-knowing, if he's all-powerful, did he really have to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to figure out what was going on? Just seems odd. And so he's going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and he is threatening to destroy both cities. And Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. He prays to the Lord. And he says, are you really going to kill the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 people in these cities that is righteous? Are you going to kill them? And he says, if there's 50 people found righteous when I go down there, I'll spare them. And then picking it up in verse 27, it says, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? I like the way he posed that argument. He didn't say, well, you kill him for 45. He said, what if we're just short five from the 50? Same thing, but clever. And God said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. And then he spoke to God and said, suppose 40 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. What is Abraham doing? He is negotiating with God. If I took time to read the rest of the chapter, he negotiates God all the way down to 10. He is praying earnestly because Abraham has family in these cities. Why would you negotiate with a God who never changes his mind? Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. While he's up there, the people create a golden calf and they begin to worship it as God. And in Exodus 32, 9, it says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. God's saying that these people are stubborn. The followers of God back then were stiff-necked, stubborn people, way different than today. It's hard for us to understand, but that's what they were like, okay? And uh, they have turned from God. They're worshiping. And he says to Moses, Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a greater nation out of you. So God turns to Moses and he says, I'm going to consume these people. And by the way, it's interesting, he says, don't talk to me about it. Don't bug me. I want my anger to burn hot, and I'm going to consume these people in the wilderness. And Moses comes back and he says, didn't you just rescue this same people? Out of Egypt? If you take the people out of Egypt and then you consume them in the wilderness, what will the Egyptians think? And then he reminds God of the promises that God has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning their descendants. And verse 11 says that Moses implored the Lord his God. Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses implores, he begs, he prays, and what does God do? He relents. The New American Standard translates that word relents. It says that he changed his mind. The King James Version says that God repented. The Hebrew word, if you study it, that is translated relented, repented, or changed his mind, it means that God literally sighed deeply. Moses says, remember your promises. What will the Egyptians think? And God went, oh and he relented. That's what it means. The sovereign God who knows all, sees all, is in this moment, in the past, in the present, and in our future. He is outside of time. Says that he's going to consume this people when he knows full well that he's not going to consume these people. What's going on? How does that work? Did God, or did Moses taught God or out of doing what he was going to do? Did God change his mind? Are you confused yet? So am I. Let's keep going. I can make it way worse, okay? Let me take you to 2 Kings chapter 20. There's a king in Israel. His name is Hezekiah, and it says, "...in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death." And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, now the prophet Isaiah comes to King Hezekiah, he's sick, the prophet of the Lord, he says this, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and you shall not recover. Awesome. Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Look what happens next, verse 4. This wasn't a prayer over long seasons of time. It says, And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the guy hadn't even gotten out of the castle yet, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, didn't he just say, thus says the Lord? The word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of the people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. A prophet speaks for God, you're dead, comes right back, thus says the Lord, you get 15 more years. What just happened? Question. Do you believe God heals today? Do you believe that sometimes God hears the prayers of his people in heels. So earlier this summer, we had a a guest speaker here, some of you would have remember Josh Tovey. And Josh Tovey has been a friend of mine, actually, since he was back in college. And I remember Josh before he was married, but he married his his sweetheart, uh, Stephanie Tovey, and he is currently pastoring a church in Granville Redemption Church. He is cut from the same cloth that we are. I love this guy. He loves God. And about a year into their marriage, Stephanie was diagnosed with cancer and she went through all of the treatments and um, finally got to the point, she was under the care of the University of Michigan and Michigan said, there's nothing more we can do for you. The cancer is winning this battle. So I flew down with Josh and Steph and We went to Houston to MD Anderson University, looking for a second opinion, seeing if there were some clinical trials that we would qualify for that Stephanie could potentially be a part of. And we heard from the doctors at MD Anderson, uh, there is nothing that we can do for Stephanie. Her cancer is going to continue to progress unchecked. And Stephanie got worse and she got sick. And I remember a specific weekend on a Saturday where my wife went to visit Stephanie Everything was failing. She was on a ventilator. She couldn't breathe for herself. And I got a call from the hospital from my wife, and she says, hey, we've, we've got to pray. Like, get it out on the prayer chain. We've got to pray. The doctors and the nurses at the end of their shift are coming in with tears in their eyes, and they're saying goodbye to Stephanie. And we prayed. And, uh, How, I don't know, but Stephanie regained strength. They got her against long odds. She was able to get off this ventilator that they had put her on and she tended to rally a little bit and eventually Joshua moved to North Carolina and in North Carolina, he went down to Duke University and Duke University said, we think we can help and she is now five years (laughs) cancer-free. You will struggle to convince me that God doesn't answer prayer, and heal. You will struggle to convince Isaiah and Hezekiah that God didn't change his mind and provide healing. Let's keep going. James 4, 2 says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The implication there is if you ask, you would have. The words of Jesus from Luke 11, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he gives this illustration. He says, what father among you, if, if, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, understand, that's a rhetorical question. Jesus was talking to a crowd. There weren't a bunch of fathers going, that was me, yeah, you got me. Like, Like, nobody would do that. And the point Jesus was making was to illustrate that if we, as fallen men, are going to give good things to our kids, look at what it says, verse 13. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Matthew 21, verse 21 Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. One more. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That is an if-then statement. If you do this, if you humble yourself, if you seek my face, and if you pray, then I will do this. So, here would be my question. If Jesus takes the time in Luke 18 to tell his disciples, here's Luke 18:1. And he told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. If Jesus told his disciples to pray and not lose heart, if Jesus exampled for the disciples a life of prayer, if prayer didn't matter, if prayer didn't have an impact or an effect, if prayer didn't accomplish anything, Why in the world did Jesus give this instruction to his disciples? See, you've got a river of God's sovereignty and unchanging, his immutability. You've got another river that God responds. There's dangers in this river as well. Some people will take God responds to our prayer that says, ask anything, and God is obligated to do it on your behalf. That's what it means. And you can turn on these preachers every day of the week. They're on TV. They've got this name it and claim it gospel, that whatever you ask, if you ask, God has to do whatever you said. In essence, you're the God. He's just your genie on call. Listen, God's not obligated to give you anything outside the purposes of his will. Here's another problem or or thing that you have in this river that can cause problems. If you pray for something and God doesn't answer, but he said that he'll give you whatever you ask, you can come to the conclusion that God isn't trustworthy. I remember 10 years ago, I was in Western Africa in Liberia. This was before I became a pastor, but I was with a group of people helping a church over there reach their community. And when I say community, I mean village, which means huts. And we were going hut to hut, evangelizing, inviting people to church, and praying for people. And we went to this one hut, I'll never forget this, and the lady came out and the pastor said, is there anything that we can pray with you about? He said, no, I'm actually good, but let me bring my mother out. And the mother came out and she had this massive tumor on her shoulder, or this goiter thing. I don't know what it was, but it was like, what? I, I didn't do that. I held it together, but I wanted to. And that pastor prayed earnestly that tomorrow God's going to heal this, and tomorrow we're going to come back, and that's going to be gone. And we got back to the church, and I'm like, Kate, hey, time out. You prayed that that would be gone by tomorrow. What are you going to do if it's not gone? He goes, It is going to be gone. I prayed in faith. I go, What if it's not? He goes, you lack faith. (laughs) I go, you just put God in a box. You just communicated to a family in your community that God is going to do something, and if he doesn't do it, what other conclusion did they come to that what you said isn't true and that God isn't trustworthy? Listen, I have full faith that God can heal that, but I will not claim to know the purposes of God in that woman's life. We can get messed up in this river. And here's the third thing that we can do is when our prayers aren't answered, it's not only that God isn't trustworthy, it's that maybe there's something wrong with our faith. My oldest sister, Kathy, she's 10 years, she was born 10 years before me. She died 20 years ago from cancer. And um, she was a nurse. She understood the diagnosis right from the beginning that this was not a battle that she was going to win without God uh, miraculously intervening. And she had loving friends, friends in a small group, people that loved her, God-fearing, God-loving people come alongside her and say, if you pray, God will heal you. But God had other plans. So the conclusion of that group of friends and supporters was, well, then you must not have faith. Wow. David received news in 2 Samuel 12 that his son was going to die verse 16 it says therefore David sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground but he would but he would not nor did he eat food with them and on the seventh day the child died 7 days David prayed David fasted earnest prayer for his kid But God didn't answer the prayer the way David looked for God to answer it. So how does David respond? This is key. And David said to them, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Two rivers of truth. God is sovereign. Biblically solid truth. And there's another river that God responds to our prayer, equally solid biblical truth. How do those work together? Which is it? Is God sovereign or is his heart moved by prayer? The confluence of those rivers, the place that I want our church to rest in, is that both of them are true. And just as the fish get between the, stri- or the currents of the two rivers, you need to rest in the fact that both of these truths are equally true. That's what David did. He prayed earnestly but then acknowledge that God was sovereign and was still able to worship. The confluence of these two biblical truths is this. Our prayer moves God's, hearts. God's heart. Our prayer moves God's heart. Is God sovereign over all things, or can we move him by our prayers? The answer is yes. And one of Satan's greatest ploys is to take biblical truths, plot them against each other to create doubt in the believer's mind. This happens all the time with prayer. How can both be true? Do you sense the tension between the two positions? Let me do my best to explain it and I'll give the illustration of preaching as an example. John six forty four says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody gets saved unless God draws them. So I'm out at Rainbow Camp. There's two guides and a cook there. They live there all summer. They just have guests coming in day after day after day, but they're there from basically middle of June to middle of September. And so when I show up and I was there with two pastors from Florida and another guy from our congregation, when the four of us show up there, you sit down at dinner, you're just chatting, they go, so what do you do? And we say, we're pastors. That's a (laughs) buzzkill. Okay, that'll just like shut down conversation. So they're always asking me, what did, what do you do? I'm tempted to ask them, but I don't. I want to ask them, what did you do? Because I know that they're fishing guys. but if you're at Rainbow Camp as a fishing guide, you're part of the Witness Protection Program. I just know it. <laughs> and uh, so we begin to chat. And over the first day and over the second day, we're hitting on different facets of the gospel. And it's interesting as you do this, there, there's three people out there. I was out there last year with Cal and we talked to three people out there. The, the girl cook, her name was Dawson, 19 years old, out there all summer. And as we talked about the things of the Lord, you could see that her interest was piqued. She was listening, she was paying attention. There was a, another guy, 18 years old, his name was Taylor, he was, couldn't care less, he's just a goofy kid, college kid. And there was a third guy there, Bryce, who was aggravated at all that we were even talking or bringing up the subject of God. So as we talked about the things of the Lord, three different different responses from the same conversation. Why is that? Because God draws people. Okay, that's the truth. So if God's the one that does the drawing, Why do I spend so much time preparing to preach? Why are we sitting here right now? Like, why why go to this? If God's going to draw, why go to all the effort? Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they haven't believed? And how are they to believe of him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This isn't just talking about formal preaching. This is talking about any time you share the gospel in any context. And what I'd like to say to you, hopefully this will make some sense, God's appointed means of achieving his appointed purpose is in the proclamation of his word. Sovereignty, God's sovereignty explains how you're saved. It's the what. Preaching is the how he has chosen to save people. We preach because preaching and sharing our faith is the means by which God accomplishes his sovereign purpose of drawing people to himself. The same is true of prayer. The big idea this morning is this. Prayer is the means by which the purposes of God is accomplished. Some people say that all prayer accomplishes, it changes your will to conform you to the unchanging will of the Lord. It's bigger than that. Our prayers move God's heart and God, our universe, runs and operates on prayer. And God moves the hearts of his people to pray in accordance with his sovereign will. Let me say this a different way so that you are not confused. If God predestined that something happen in answer to prayer, then it won't happen without prayer. Why would we pray? Because it moves the heart of God. And I know this is confusing. Two doctrinal truths that seem to contradict. But here's the cool thing. When you rest between those and acknowledge that both is true, here's what you realize. That when you pray, you are praying to a God that is in sovereign control and nothing happens in your life that doesn't go through the hands of a heavenly Father who is in complete control and is after your good. Romans 8.28 says, I work all things together together for good to those who love the Lord. And it also gives us motivation to pray because throughout scripture we have seen men and women of God cry out to God and it has moved the heart of God. Well David, I don't understand how both those truths work together perfectly. Well, here's why. Because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty, and can we just give him credit for knowing a little bit more than we can comprehend? We have little brains. If God wanted us to understand everything about him, our heads would be big. We couldn't balance. It would create other problems. And sometimes in resting in God's sovereignty, we need to rest in the fact that there are two truths in the Bible, that our prayer moves God's heart. And also that God is in sovereign control. And when we rest in that braid of water, that peaceful water in between, we can find rest in our souls and we don't give up on prayer because we don't believe that God doesn't care, doesn't hear, or isn't moved. So, three things as we close. How do we pray in a way that moves the heart of God? Here's the first. Get low. When you see men in scripture pray, they get low. Abraham, in his prayer that I referenced in Genesis 18, he approaches the Lord, he says, I am but dust and ashes. Second Chronicles 7, If my people humble themselves and pray, then I will hear, I will respond. Psalm 138.6 says, for, the Lord, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. I don't want to be known by the Lord from afar. I want to be in relationship with the Lord, and God's got a plan for that. You're either going to humble yourself or you're going to be humbled. In the course of this series, we are praying that God does a transformation in the life of our church and the life of individuals in our church. And my prayer would be that you would be bold enough to say, Lord, teach me to pray better. But that prayer, you better understand it comes with a warning. Because I have seen God bring things into people's lives that destroy their illusion of control. People are way better prayers when either they or someone close to them is sick, when they lose a job, when they're struggling in relationships. You've got to get low. God is near to the lowly. Second thing you need to do is get honest. If you are not constantly aware Of your need of grace, if you're not constantly confessing sin, if you're not constantly going before the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you, I can't do this on my own, eventually you will begin to hide with your sin from God and rather than run to Him, you will run from Him. It's just inevitable. I believe people don't pray sometimes because of pride. I believe sometimes people don't pray because they don't understand how prayer works. And here's a third reason why I think many people don't pray they're too ashamed. We're going to unpack this in the upcoming weeks. But if what is keeping you from running to the Lord is you just feel too ashamed, you just don't get the gospel. You just don't get the gospel. John 1.9 says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The creator God of the universe is in desire, desires to have a relationship with you and he is inviting you into conversation with him regardless of what is in your past. Get low, get honest. and Here's a third one, get expectant. The disciples lived with Jesus for three years. They never asked him how to preach, Lord, teach us to preach, they never asked that question. They never asked him how to do miracles, hey, t- teach me that thing with the fish and the loaves. They never do that. One request of Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus goes to his disciples, not only does he model prayer up until the night before he is on the cross. But his entire life, withdrawing to pray, withdrawing to pray, urging his disciples, don't grow weary of prayer. Why? Because there is an expectancy that God hears our prayers and that he responds because our prayers move the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, I would um, pray in this series that you would do a work in my heart, in the hearts of the people in this room, and uh, I waded out into deep waters this morning. Father, I would pray that in an effort to explain your sovereignty and your unchangeability alongside your incredible love and that you hear the cries of your people, that I've been faithful to the things that you lay out in your word. Father, don't let us be more don't let us be more reformed than the Bible is. Teach us to embrace all aspects of how you reveal yourself. Father, teach us to pray believing that you hear us, you love us and that our prayers matter. It's in your great name we pray.